today's episode, we have the fantastic and most enthusiastic Emma Alexander, who's a mentor, producer, and owner of Wizen.com. We talk about the power of accountability, your personal and brand values, and the importance of having a niche. So start your computer, open that retouch, and let us entertain you. Morning, morning, morning. How are you doing, Tom? Good morning. I'm all right, my friend. How are you doing? I'm, I'm yep, yeah, not too bad, as you can still see, still not at home. <laughs> How is your hotel room that you've not <laughs> left in what, going on a week? <laughs> uh, yeah, it's um, it's uh, it's turning into Groundhog Day. I'm building a routine. Okay. Uh, I'm also building a tower of uh, food parcels and general waste that can't go outside yet. Nice. That, yeah, that'll great. be a really, f- I can just imagine your room being really fresh smelling like a, you know, a Nordic forest or something. <laughs> I've, I've literally piled it all down the other end kind of, uh, yeah, away. It's, it's actually been quite funny. I've been turning into some kind of OCD, you know, like just organizing the space as best I can in some kind of crazy hostage situation, Stockholm syndrome kind of thing. I don't know. So it's, it's, uh, so it's going well then. <laughs> it's very something very dystopian about not being able to leave a room, mm. and literally your only communication with the outside world is is via a computer or a telephone or the voice on the end of a line. And occasionally, I'm allowed to open the door, and there'll be somebody stood in the corridor, like. 15 feet away in a mask <laughs> if I look at them they'll scurry away <laughs> and, and I'm allowed to they... coll- collect the package that they've left on the oh, table outside they're dropping something off for you yeah. they haven't just come to look at you it's like some weird hostage situation <laughs> except that is... there's no hostage taker it's just me you are here. just you are just a hostage <laughs> yeah that's brutal <laughs> very very strange but you and do have... like organizing stuff don't you You've got a, you've got kind of you've got form for this. Well, I think we're, we're both you know goes to the territory, doesn't it? Does it though? Every time I, every time I speak to people, they're like, "Your cases look beautiful." And maybe you know, it doesn't go to the territory. Actually, yeah, maybe we are. And so freaks. I think we are. I mean, me and you, we do like organisation, really, don't we? And it's for me, it's just a big thing. I like I like being able to open up a case on a shoot and know exactly where everything is. Mm. To the point where my cases have pictures inside showing the layout for anyone who then goes into the case and doesn't know where anything goes. They can just, you know, they're not quite laminated pictures. I haven't kind of got to that kind of level, but there there are pictures of them. But you're considering it. I am considering it, yeah. Just trying not to, you know, plastic from the environment just seems a bit silly to be laminating a picture of a, of well, a it's flight not single case. use though, is it? It's being used every time you open the Open the case. That's true. As long as you don't change your layout too often, which which is kind of the problem. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) I'm I'm forever. I'm sure we all are. Like, oh, I reckon that Velcro divider would be a little bit better, like half an inch backwards. Yeah, and then things are forever changing. The cases, the cases now. I think as I've completed photography equipment, I think the cases now aren't going to change. Hmm. We need to post a picture of one of your cases up to the um, exposed negative. Insta. I should do, really. Yeah, It's quite a lot. Put one in the story put, or something. I put up a story the other day saying who would like to see inside my cases, and I genuinely had 150-plus messages 
of everyone saying yeah. your cases look absolutely ridiculous and completely OTT. So, <laughs> so I think that I should really do that. <laughs> what do you use inside your case to organise it then? So, glad you asked. I got th- I got three different things that I use. So I use Trekpack, mm-hmm. and then in the cases that matter less that or get used less, I use the standard Peli dividers. Mm-hmm. the yellow the bright yellow ones and then in my main camera bag i use the peak design dividers mm-hmm. because they're possibly i think one of the best outside of track pack which is a different system i think the, the peak design ones are the best velcro dividers ever yeah i mean they've got a few features like the sticky elastic bit that you can slap on the side which is quite useful a little pouch for batteries and what have you or mm-hmm. for, for, I tend to use Business it. cards. Yeah, no, I, what do I use it for? I tend to use it for odds and sods and tools and bits that kind of have no, like, you know, like um, cable release for the camera and stuff like that sometimes mm-hmm. gets tucked in there. And then they yeah. have the, the one that kind of flaps over so you can create two half depth pouches. Yeah, I, I that's a really neat design. My stuff's all full height, so I mm. never actually need that. But it's a great idea if, you, if you're on a mirrorless system Oh, like it that uses small lenses like the fuji for example yeah. which i'm sure yeah, yeah, you yeah. probably yeah um trouble is canon the rf stuff is all massive yeah so it defeats the point i recently got a timber roadie um mm. case which is I, I got for kind of roll for rolling carry-on it's also got a backpack strap I, why um, are you rolling carry-on about because, because cameras Terrible weigh a lot de- <laughs> terrible dead bird joke for you there <laughs> but what's quite useful is if you're if you're traveling to an airport with um you know like on on this particular job i had a, a fifteen sixty peli case and then i have a very large um osprey like 80 liter bag as my oh, main like a, duff, kind of, like a duffel like a big duffel yeah it's my main yeah. luggage because it means i can also fit kind of potentially could fit a stand in there i could fit a brolly in there i could fit tripods etc in there because of the oh, length of that- it it's that big. Mm. I'm not sure. If wow, I've okay. not tried to fit a full stand in there, but I, fit, I fit, definitely fit brollies in there. Um, okay. And it's, yeah, so then that means you've got two rolling bags. Um, and sometimes, obviously, that's not a problem because you have a trolley, but you can't always rely on being somewhere where you can find a trolley. So sure. then my camera bag needs to be able to be, go on my back. But as soon as I've checked those bags, I don't want to be spending the next hour walking around an airport with a heavy backpack on. So I like to have no, one fair. that also rolls. So the roadie rolls. But the reason I brought it up was it has a pouch system in it where you can remove the um, the bottom. So the bottom section of the bag has a pouch that removes and could slot into a separate camera bag. So say you have like a, I mean, it's designed to use the bag that they have, which is uh, pack packable. And then mm-hmm. you can supposedly take that if you're going on a recce or something and use it in that packable bag. But I uh, use it with my Billingham, so I can take it out and just insert it into my Billingham. Okay. Um, which is quite nice. It's like a, a nice little concept, a feature I've not seen so much before. Um, mm. But yeah, it's not. they seem like relatively good bags. I mean, I used to be a big... Well, I still am to some degree. Like I have a think tank bag that I've had for over 10 years. Mm-hmm. And um, they are, you know, bulletproof. But it's are difficult. They still, with... Are they still bulletproof? 
I haven't I had one in. I haven't had a think tank in years. Yeah, I don't know. Uh, I feel like the, the the like any company, the the you know staff changes and designs change, and maybe materials they use changes. I I can't say whether or not they. Uh, all I do know is that some of the ranges that they used to make, which are were fantastic, are no longer produced, which I think is a real shame. Mm-hmm. I actually bought one of their. Um, uh, they used to do a multimedia kind of kit when back when the future was um, audio slideshows, you know, yeah. yeah. And everyone was getting into that. They designed a pack that you kind of, as they would say in America, a fanny pack. Um, uh, how much? How much year of me? Um, how much year? It uh, yeah, it's strapped around your waist, and it has little things like a. A little hook that you can hang your headphones off your over you know cans off mm-hmm. and uh, a front section that you'd put your audio recorder in but anyway they they were brilliant bags really well made and um uh, i think it was snapper stuff had them last year in the black friday sale and they were reduced so much because they're no longer made i guess old stock but brand new mm-hmm. and i just even though i've already got one that's very similar i just bought it because i'm like if these are no longer made I'm just going to have this in reserve for when my other one eventually dies. Yeah, I think you that's know, very sensible. Because, I, because do, I do the exact same thing. They're so useful on on shoots. I mean, it totally depends on the way that you shoot. But I tend to find that having, um, if you're if you're if I'm shooting more kind of reportage documentary style, then I need to have two camera bodies on me and probably a mm-hmm. multitude of lenses. And rather mm-hmm. than stepping back to a bag and changing, I like to be mobile. So I like to have those lenses on me and, mm-hmm. um, you know, the best way to do that is actually to share the weight off your shoulders and around your waist rather than just having it on your waist or just having it on your shoulders. So mm. they sit there right in front of you and it's all very easily accessible. Um, so yeah, they're, they're great for that, but they can also then it, turn into a shoulder bag. It is an interesting point you make. Obviously everyone, everyone needs different styles of cases right mm. so for me you and me shoot in a very different way you know you say you like to shoot a lot of reportage stuff for me my bag weighs I don't know it must be 15 to 20 kilos when it's fully laden and so i the only time it ever goes on my back is from the car you know from the office into the car from the car into the location and then it's put either on a trolley or on the floor somewhere and then that's where it stays for mm. the whole day one body comes out that then lives on the um, on the cart. Well, so you, you you're talking probably here about using your peak design as your camera bag. Yeah, that's right? that's right. We yeah. both and have so, we both have that bag, don't we? The travel. Yeah, and I, I absolutely. So I've owned bags by all sorts of different companies now, and that this is the one. I've now had this. Ooh, years since it launched i think i got it about six months after it kind of went on general sale and i i would say i'm staring at it now just and it looks you know you're talking about different materials and stuff i've now had that years and years and years all the buckles for example are scratched and all the blacks come off them which shows how much it's been used but really the rest of the bag is holding up in a way that camera bags have never held up for me before yeah. and it looked, the material you know, is amazing like it's very i good. reckon i could if i was to sell it today i could sell it saying it's six months old mm. like it's it's and it's years old and it's been all over the world but with we me. don't know you're lying well oh 
damn it. If well, you see plus... Tom selling a bag on eBay and it says yeah, it's six right. months old, don't believe him. <laughs> to, be, to be honest, though, I'm never going to sell this bag. I no. That is my bag, right? Like, I, see, I, I, no... I love that bag, apart from one thing, one gripe I have with it. Which one's um, that? The, the the travel bag. What which which gripe is it or which bag? Um my gripe with the travel bag really is that and I know like you say for what you do it doesn't matter so much because it's not on your back that much. But for what mm-hmm. I do, I tend to find that if I'm wearing a photo backpack it I might be wearing it for a, a long time, especially if I'm shooting in London. Because mm-hmm. I might be on public transport or something like that. Um, and if I'm wheeling a lighting bag and I have a stand bag, if I'm going between cabs and trains and tube and whatever, I'm, I need to be mobile. And that, uh, bag has kind of, um, the straps on it are not very comfortable when it's fully loaded. And I know that's because they're designed so that they can be tucked away, which I think is a neat little feature, but not one that personally I use that often. What oh, I, d- I use it. I use it quite a lot. I, I, yeah, see, I don't, but what I do like the 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 strap that they have in the middle on the back. I think is fantastic. That is a, it, it's a grab you, you, grab handle, a grab handle, but also you can pop it sideways onto a pelly case, for example, yeah. and stick the pelly handle. I think you have to kind of do it at an angle, but you can then slide that down so it stops the case from falling off the pelly case. Yeah, yeah. I think the um, I think one day. We should design a bag. <laughs> the well, X negative I mean, camera bag. Yeah, I mean it'd be it would be good. I'd be into it. I'd be into it. I, I, I always thought from... if I didn't if I didn't take pictures, I'd probably want to do something like making and designing bags. <laughs> I'd go with that. From from my point of view, it would look very similar to the point where Peak Design would suit might you. <laughs> might get in touch and be like, listen, Tom. Your your Reek Fazine forty five liter day bag, it, it looks very similar. Um, but yeah, I, there are always things. I you know I don't I don't think in our world cameras are ever going to be perfect for for everyone, and I don't think bags are ever going to be perfect for everyone. But it does it does you know when you find the things that are really close to what you're after, mm. it makes such a big difference. Yeah, like such a big difference. I mean, I, I, you know, the whole, um, I can't even remember what I called it in the last season. The great reduction, no, the great simplification. The, the great simplification, right? So with the great simplification, it was a bit. I'm glad I did it, so none of the none of the listeners did. Mm. So my idea was to put as much kit into as few cases as possible. Actually, I don't feel that that's the right way to do it now because I ended up being the only person on set who I allowed to carry the stand bag, which weighed over 35 kilos. And then the main lighting, uh, roller, which was a Peli, uh, 1615. And that weighed almost 30 kilos as well. And I'm quite a big guy for anyone who has listens to the show, but doesn't know what I look like. Well, obviously you're very lucky, but also I'm six foot six. I'm quite a big dude. And um, for me, my rule, and it has always been, if you ask any of the people who've ever assisted me, my rule has always been, I am I pack the bag, I lift it, right? 
I don't, so I don't believe that I just, you know, open the boot of the car up and be like, right guys, just get, get whatever you can. If there's a heavy bag in there that I know is heavy, I have to lift it. The rule is that no one is allowed to carry it. And I've always, I've always done that because, you know, it's just, it's polite, isn't it? You know, you don't want to suddenly go, you know, you've got a, a five foot eight or six foot assistant who's, you know, scrawny and really young, you know, bless them, I know you're all out there. But, um, you know, I don't want them damaging themselves or falling over backwards or dropping the case on them, you know. So I... I <laughs> Sorry. So, I'm watching you just dig a hole here. <laughs> no, I mean, dig a hole. I mean, I'm just being polite. I mean, it's 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 just nice. I'm not saying that I'm the only person who, in the world who can carry... Strong enough cases. to lift my bags. <laughs> all, these, but, all these assistants falling over... <laughs> Getting crushed by the weight of your cases. (laughs) I mean, it has happened. But but what I learned is that actually that's not a great way to be. Hmm. So I've 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 rebought and repacked and have reorganized all the kit. So instead of in one case, it's now spread over one, two, three, four, five, six pelly cases Hmm. that anyone can lift. And so I turn up at a shoot with a rock and roller cart, all in stealth black, obviously. Um, and then we we un, unravel that and we load the whole thing up and just push the cart. And I, I had to push that cart with an assistant um, back in December, I think it was. We had to push that a mile and a half from the car to the location. And it was it was almost no effort because mm. it, was, it, was, it was downhill on the way. And then it turned out it was a lot of effort because it was uphill on the way back. Yeah, that's the so, way these things work, Tom. <laughs> yeah, didn't really think that one through. Do you so, think um, there'll ever be a? Uh, I mean, this is. <laughs> I never like to start a question like that. Do you think there'll ever be a time when there's a kid who's faster than a shack? <laughs> <laughs> no. What I was going to say. Do you think there will be a time? And I think the answer is probably yes. But it would be quite cool if they started designing those carts with a little electric motors. Well, like so a, that, the golf golf carts have got them. But you're basically, but something, but surely like a golf cart now, if you think about kind of uh, electric scooters and what have you, and the size of the batteries mm. and the tech and everything that goes into them, you mm-hmm. get to a point where one of those carts, you literally, you'd have a plate at the end that you could fold out and stand on. And the thing would move at like, I don't know, a, a, a safe a safe speed. A safe speed. And you could just miles you could hour. just stand on the back, like driving the thing, kind of yeah, like, I mean, a, like a little forklift. I would say that it's it's quite a niche. I would say it's quite a niche use. For well, us. I don't know, but it yeah, be, I mean, uh, I it can be the first X egg invention. You heard do you know it here what? First. Would you would you pay money to buy that? You would. <laughs> that's what. That's why I asked you the question. <laughs> No, I don't. I don't know whether I'd. I don't know whether I'd. I don't know whether I'd go for that. What? Like I, say, that, I think that in the future, it's going to be. If, if you think about kind of personal transportation, mm. as we see the demise of, um, as we see the kind of rise, sorry, of of populations, you're going to have less space on the road for cars, so there will be more alternative modes of transport. And you've already seen it with like the rise of the e-scooter, which you know, 10 years ago, just wasn't really a thing. Sure. As a mode of transport, the scooter was there. But, you know, 20 years before that, no one had really seen scooters used 
that in anywhere near that capacity so mm-hmm. the scooter in itself has kind of come out as this new mode of transport that just wasn't there 50 years ago right so if you're looking ahead i kind of think that there's going to be new kind of small uh, moves towards kind of personal modes of transport which are designed for one person but needs to carry luggage i see where you're going with this sinclair c5 uh, no, exactly. <laughs> um, I'm thinking it would be. I I wonder whether or not it's going to get to the point where there will be. Um, I guess a little bit like cargo bikes. You know, cargo bikes become more popular now. Yeah. Uh, in cities, because they can be powered with electric motors, and they go from something that's just quite niche, and you know, you need to be pretty fit to kind of um, use, even though the gear ratios are good, to something where because it's power assisted. Are anyone actually can anyone can use as long as you've got a place to store it. But for a company, mm-hmm. for a small company, it makes sense to have a fleet of those electric bikes rather than having a van. So, you know, will there be kind of more uh, vehicle? I mean, we veered off photography, but basically, what I'm saying is, will Tom the Tom Barnes of the future, when your knees have gone, be turning up to a shoot with you know your six penny cases loaded on the front of your little electric scooter? <laughs> I mean, it's six pelly cases. That's not going to be a little electric scooter, is it? That's going to be a big scooter. Well, it's a no, little scooter, know, but it just happens to have a massive front end I, to it. I don't... Well, yeah, imagine. <laughs> Steering that thing's going to be fun. Um, no, I don't know. To be honest, I'm also, I guess the issue here is also the amount of kit we now have to bring out. You know, for a, for a job that I I would typically shoot now... I'll have to bring in the lighting for moving image as well as stills. Mm. So that doubles my loadout. And I just, I just don't think, I mean, unless you live in London and just hire kit all the time, but me and you are very different. I mean, you, you own a lot of kit, but I own all the kit because Mm. I'm, I'm out of town. So I don't really hire. Mm. So, you know, I think it could go, I don't know. To be honest, for, for me, I think I'm just going to stick with my rock and roller and my multiple pellies, and I'm just going to cry a little bit every time I have to walk up a hill. Well, I mean, kits, I think kits only going to get smaller. It's not going to get bigger. What you're sure, talking about is the fact that the, the job that you're doing, the demands have become more. The client wants more. They want more options, as mm-hmm. is always the way. Um, and ultimately, that means that you need more kit to, to do that. I think lighting is becoming actually smaller. I mean, look at the Profoto line, you know, battery-powered heads that, are, mm-hmm. you know, just, again, weren't around 20 years ago, being able to have that amount of power in that package. And you look at cameras, they're, they're increasingly becoming smaller. You've not got... Unless you buy an R5 and then the lenses well, there the are just small, getting... The, the camera is smaller, yeah. I didn't say the lenses oh, are the, getting smaller. <laughs> sure. Yeah, here's the, here's the thing, right? Oh, buy mirrorless. It's really lightweight and small, and then you end up but buying then, an R5 system. But then that's just Canon. Mm. Look at Sony. Sony has a full-frame system. The lenses are, you know, they're not um, they're not small, but they're not as big as a, as a Canon glass. No, but also the Canon glass, you know, I'm, I've, I've just picked up a couple of months ago the 28-70, which is the biggest lens... And I do very much feel every time I pull it out on set, people are like, are you, uh, are you overcompensating? Um, and the answer is yes. But the but the lens is is monstrous compared to the actual body. Mm. But the, um, the the Sony stuff, I mean, all, all of this stuff, I understand to get the to get the quality 
and the the, the lens the lenses for mirrorless here's a bit of a broad statement but the lenses for example my rf lenses are absolutely miles ahead of the ef stuff for af speed quality um just rendering Mm. i really really like the stuff even though they're monstrous i'm I'm not i have to say i'm not a fan of the new design of the 7200 i do not like kind of bellows action uh, zoom lenses so i don't use you know no i the extending one yeah, I'm the, I mean. I'm the same as you to the point where I will not buy a lens like that because someone told me years and years ago um, that they basically act like a suction pump. Yeah, sucking all the dust, supposedly. Pulling, pulling the dust into the lens. And, you know, if I'm going to be using a lens like that a lot, that's going to get full of dust pretty quickly. And I'm sure mm. there's sealing. I'm sure, I'm sure that I'm sure that doesn't happen as, as badly as it looks. But for mm. me... I use the long primes, so 85 and 100 prime, and then I just use the 28 to 70. And to be honest, most of the time, I'd say probably 95, maybe 97% of my work is done on the 28 to 70 now. Hmm. I don't even know if I ever go longer. Yeah. Probably should. <laughs> well, no, I mean, it's, it's, it's horses, of course, it depends what you shoot, but like a lot of press photographers are if... going to need 7200s. That's just sure. kind of a huge part of their arsenal. Uh, I should probably explain if you are if you are shooting horses on courses, you will probably need something longer than 28 to 70. Yes. Yes. Um, <laughs> so yeah, no, it's, it's, I don't know. It's, um, uh, we should just call these intros, ah, bad future predictions for the industry. Plus weird ideas for bag design. Weird. I don't think we came up with that many weird ideas. I mean, is there any? Is there anything you would like to see in a bag that doesn't currently exist? Okay, so yeah, to get back to that. Oh yes, very quickly. <laughs> um, well, no, I uh, I was going to ask you about. See, I feel like there's a lack of decent options for um, making inserts, like customizing your own inserts for pelly case lids. And I know that there was a system where you could add Molly attachments before. And I think like a lot of, you know, the photography industry is very niche and, mm-hmm. um, sorry for our American les- listeners, niche. Um, very good. <laughs> uh, f- so, and I find that the, um, it, it takes things like the military and like the military industry, for example, seems to kind of like have this bigger, um, quicker, um, what's the word I'm looking for? It, it's like um, refreshing of ideas and changes and customizable ability. So the Pelly case is interesting because it's not just something that gets used in the photography industry. It gets used in search and rescue. It gets used in the military. It gets used in, I don't know, probably m- medical and science and all sorts, you know, because they're practical mm-hmm. cases. And so I, I, I find it surprising that there aren't, you know, given all of those industries using it, there aren't more kind of um, options out there on the market. Um, and there, there are in the US, but there's less in the UK. Let me help you, right? So in the UK, uh, and I'm sure in the in the States, you guys can order these from B&H and I think Adorama and I think Jason's Cases actually is where you can get them from direct. So Jason's Cases do, um, uh, and I think they're called Photo Essentials as well Mm. they do the clear pouches 
that are on a that are on a bit of plastic that you just velcro into the uh, the lid of the pelly, and you have one for the fifteen ten, fifteen thirty five, fifteen sixty. All the cases that we tend to use, mm. they've got these really really good lid dividers. Okay, and they're all clear, so they're clear plastic pouches with a velcro uh, lid, and then you lift it up. Obviously, you see what see what you pop in it. Um, now they're they're kind of. I, see, I I personally think they're excellent value because I think they're really really good to see in. And if you if you're in the UK wondering where can I get these, Panastore, so the Panavision store in the UK sell them, uh, and they quite often have them in stock. Um, so it might be worth reaching out to them and seeing. Is it, I have seen those before, but I feel like they are not the the thing I'm personally looking for. With that because for my Digi case, I ended up kind of make coming up my solution and buying a some heavy duty clear pouches that had velcro backs mm-hmm. and then putting my own velcro inside get my own labels made up you know but there is like a gap in the market for a system where you can customize that stuff properly and those well, clear I did, I did that as well and I was I was quite happy with it the trouble was it's very hard to get. I'm sure you you probably did it a bit better than me. It's very hard to get the right depth of the pouch because if they're yeah. too wide, they then hang down into yeah. the case and then you, you then lose storage space. Which incidentally is why I bought one of the Molly um, grids that screw into the lid, and I was then strapping bits onto it, which then when I closed the lid was going too much into the base of the lid because the yeah. Molly, the, it's not that recessed in the lid it yeah. sticks down a bit there is um, a have you seen this company cr crd crd bag crud bag i mean they're swedish um they not the most kind of catchy name but they look well i think absolutely it, I think it's solid crud. i think it's crud right i just think they just got, got rid of the u from crud because you just chuck all your crud in the bag right well, I don't know because crud to me makes it sound like a crap, <laughs> like yeah, a crud I, bag. Actually, it's like it's like we're calling it company. You seen crap that crud bag? bag? Well, you know, <laughs> it's not that great. No, they they look they look really good, um, and you know, they seem I've to be designed been... for filmmakers, don't they? Because they've got the space yeah, very... for putting your kind of uh, names, like Velcro name patches on, and and uh, bits that you can put like Dymo printed labels or gaffer tape labels in. Mm-hmm. They're very well thought yeah. out. They are very well thought out, but um, with that comes quite a quite a heavy cost. Yeah, they are they are pretty expensive. For, and and here's the trouble: I I always find in photography. Now this is going to sound like a really just like a. <clears throat> I don't mean to, to sound like, oh woe is me, but it does feel like photographers. A lot of our stuff's expensive. Yeah, there is a there is a marker. We're kind of like the wedding industry, right? You put a wedding in front of a cake, and then suddenly the wedding cake goes from being ten pounds. I mean, obviously, I understand that wedding cakes are a bit more involved than a ten pound cake you get on a supermarket shelf. I'm not making that direct comparison, but if you ring up and say, "I need a cake to feed thirty people," they'll give you a quote. If you ring up a day later and say, "I need a wedding cake to feed thirty people," it'll you know have thirty percent marked up. Well, it's a bit like stands, isn't it? Stand bags. They're like this. Mm. I mean, if you buy a stand bag, you're going to be spending probably 200 to 300 quid for a decent quality stand bag. If you were to go and buy a hard plastic golf bag, which effectively, you know, is not as fit for purpose, you could probably get something for sub 100. 
Um, well, it's funny. Do you know what and you yet say? It that? does the same job. It's all got all the all the all the golf cart stuff. I mean, I used to actually run an HPRC golf club case as one of my cases. Um, I flew with it. A yeah, but times HPRC is quite kind of high end. Well, they're the, they're the Italian Pelli, right? Yeah, I think I think I think they're Italian. I think they're Italian. Um, and nice cases. I just I feel that Pelli have kind of got the market sewn up as far as really good cases. Well, there's one other brand in the in. I think they're a Canadian brand. I was trying to find them, but I can't is it remember because Na- I... Nan Nanook. Yeah, something like that, isn't it? Nanook Pack Nanu- or something. N- yeah, Nanu- well, Nanu-Nu. they do. I know Nanu- they've got a. Nanu- li- Nanu- I know they've got a lid. <laughs> Hello, Robin. Um, <laughs> I know there's. I know there's a. Um, they do a lid organizer type thing for some of their cases. I don't know if it'll fit a Pelly. Yeah. Um, what are they called? I will say, do, Greg, th- th- this intro is quickly becoming its own episode. Our longest of one. Talk. I know. Mm. Shall we? We we've, we can talk bags for days. So let's. Um, shall we jump this into is this the week's trouble. episode? I think so. I think so. So on this week's episode, we've got the amazing Emma Alexander, who is a producer and a mentor to the stars. And by the stars, I mean me and obviously <laughs> hundreds of others. But, um, you know, I've I've uh, spoken with Emma uh, in the past. I found uh, the session super useful. So, um, yeah, hopefully this is going to be a, a fascinating chat. On today's episode, we have the amazing Emma Alexander, who is a commercial photography specialist, uh, who uh, producer, mentor, wears every hat possible. Emma, how are you doing? I'm good, thank you. Thanks for having me on. No, welcome, welcome. Thanks. I, I also did like the most podcast intro for you ever. So, apologies, it was maybe a little bit over the top, but you do wear <laughs> a lot of hats. I do. So, do you want to give us a bit of background? Uh, about you and how you kind of have have come to be where you are now. Absolutely. So, yes, my name is Emma Alexander. I'm the founder of a commercial production company, Mother Brown, and a career development platform for creatives called Wizen. And my background has really always been rooted in commercial photography. I've had a a really lovely squiggly career um, from you know starting off as a, a photographer and I've been a, I've been a retoucher. I've worked in syndication and licensing. Um, I've headed up departments and studios. I think the majority of my long, which probably makes me sound really old, uh, which is right, um, most of my career has really <laughs> been in um, advertising as an art buyer and a producer, and right. then uh, most recently, obviously running my own production company, which. Um, which rather excitingly turns five this year. Just realised last week. Oh, uh, congratulations! Really it's a big birthday. Thank you very much. It was like a massive milestone. So yeah, re- really very much rooted in in uh, in the commercial landscape, and um, I feel quite fortunate to have done quite a few different, you know, areas. I feel like I've had this really intense kind of um, uh, career, and really been able to sort of live and breathe the whole process from start to finish, which I think has really helped. Uh, in terms of me understanding how the landscape mm. works, mm. I mean that's a that's a breadth of experience that most people will never have. That's you know literally almost every department. From what yeah. I can tell, you you haven't been a gaffer, and that's about, that's about yet. it, right? No, but there's always time. I mean, <laughs> okay, yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Say, nice. I was going to say I get about. Nice. <laughs> but it has been said. <laughs> so. 
Not that kind of podcast, am I? <laughs> <laughs> so what, that's some like, how did you go from get, being uh, when you when you started up your own company? Had, was that the first time you'd kind of worked for your, you know, just fully for yourself as a kind of free? I guess you'd freelanced before, but you'd, you freelance for other companies. And then suddenly you'd gone transitioned from that to working, doing your own thing. A hundred percent. I never wanted to run my own business. I never had the dream of, I want to be my own boss. I never wanted the freedom. I never thought I ever wanted to do anything other than PAYE nine to five, safety, safety, safe, safe. Um, I hated the idea of having to always look to your next job. It terrified me. Um, and yeah, I've, I never really thought, even when I was, um, you know, all the way along, basically, I have been PIE from, from my first job in a newspaper desk to, you know, last one in the ad industry. And it, I won't delve into the background too much, but essentially it's the classic story of, you know, you go and have a baby, one company screws you over, so you leave and you go to another place, then you have your second baby and they screw you over, you <laughs> threaten to take them to court, uh, we make a settlement, and then you sit at home and think, oh my God, what next? Um, and I think mm. there was a there was a financial wow. Yeah, yeah, classic story. And actually, you know, it's a, a story a lot of women face, um, unfortunately. Why are there yeah. no oh, I bet you know in the ad industry now who are 50 plus? Where are the older, yeah. you know, midlife men and women, but predominantly women in the advertising industry? I mean, this is a whole mm. this is a whole other rant I'm not gonna get into, but yeah, and, and it's so often because so and why there's so many freelance women, because we do, we think there, I think for us, it was a lot of, one, there was a financial viability. When I looked at what was going to come in and uh, what was going out to put two children through childcare, uh, it didn't make sense to pay for someone else to raise my children uh, and do 60 hours a week on yeah. yep. bleeding up my eyes for somebody else. But there was also mm-hmm. a part of, you know, and my, my husband is brilliant at this I, I simultaneously hate him and love him but he was like why wouldn't you do this now you have this you know redundancy money why wouldn't you give it a go why wouldn't you just see and I thought oh my god I don't want to do this it was so scary but actually there had to be another way and I think that was one of the interesting things and I think a lot of creators feel like this too there had to be another way from doing 60 hours a week getting paid for 40 or the mm-hmm. overtime or the I've got to just I've got to just I've got to just have to just do anything sure. um so yeah it was a, there was a real mindset shift uh, and there was a couple of really key points when i was going through those periods with those businesses where i i really found a kind of fire that i never knew i had and really argued my point and i just thought no this this is the time yeah um let's give it a go and see what happens and five years later we are still operating and and doing really well you know doing really well actually so i'm I'm very proud, very pleased to have been pushed by my husband, literally pushed into making that decision. Um, I think it can feel really scary. But also, look at it, look at it know, this way. It feels really scary. You're, you're five year, well, you're five years old now, right? But you've had two of those years, mm-hmm. which have been some of the worst ever to be a freelancer. So to have made it yeah. out on the other side, you know, we've said this at the end of the last season, for, for people who've managed to get through the past couple of years, it's such a massive achievement, regardless of you know whether they're still whether the the business is stalled or growing. They've made it through, um, so that's a huge achievement for you guys. Yeah, and actually, we've 
done better than ever, which is really kind of awkward. And I don't often say this because I know a lot of people haven't, but um, at the end of the pandemic, well, end of the first year of the pandemic, lockdown, end of lockdown one, we ended up doing uh, almost double our average annual turnover in three months, which was just absolute wow, madness, wow. like to come out of Brilliant. what we, <laughs> I mean, I mean, you know, you know, it's a roller coaster, right? Being freelance, you know, be, being, a, uh, being sort of director of a, a limited company, it's a roller coaster, um, especially in, the, in this industry. But yeah, it, it was like a peak and a trough to go from absolutely no work for, a, you know, for the first half a year and then to do literally double, the, almost double the previous year's typical turnovers in, in three months was, uh, with no childcare, was amazing. <laughs> and mm. almost killed me, yeah. um, but was incredible. Was it really incredible? And then, to, yeah, this year, I think we'll we'll do about half a million turnover, which would be amazing. So yeah, it's a really nice place to be at the moment. Yeah. Can Not you explain a little bit to the listeners about, you know, what, what exactly um, the company does in terms of your kind of the hats that you wear and, and the, the services that you provide? Because some of our listeners are going to not necessarily have worked with production companies as much as others, um, depending on what kind of photography they do or where they are in their career. Yeah, so um, essentially production, we, we support uh, predominantly independent creatives, um, those who don't have agents. Typically, we do work with agents, we do work with people with agents, and we work with um, some ad agencies directly. But on the whole, we support independents um, to create creative briefs. So they will be uh, commissioned for their creative work far by, you know, by a brand directly or an ad agency directly. And some jobs, you know, you can do yourself. You know <clears throat> what logistics you need to put in place to bring your shoots to life. But actually, mm-hmm. when you add in lots more complexities, the bigger they are, the more complex they are. When you have talent and styling and you know vast amounts of crew or logistics and travel and permits and insurances, or that is when you a do not have the time to or, or expertise to understand if you're operating safely and legally as well. Um, and you just need a bit of a hand getting that together. Um, but also, you shouldn't have to be doing those things yourself either. You know, on um, the nice thing about the sort of bigger sets in a way and one of the things about production when I fell into production I realized I'm a bit of a I'm a bit of a mother hen I like to help people I like to you know look after people and it really made sense when I fell into this role because actually what production does is is really make sure everything runs smoothly behind the scenes so you don't know what kind of what's going on you know you're you're on set and your job as a photographer is really to focus on bringing this idea to life that, that's it. That is your focus, 100%. And mm-hmm. the client, or the client's um, focus is really, is what we're making, what they're seeing on the screen, you know, tethering back, is that fulfilling their brief in terms of their customer profile, the, the, the way they need it to perform, uh, the way mm-hmm. they're going to use it, their message, their brand tone of voice, is it hit, hitting everything for them? And then you've got the advertising agency as well, the, the advertising, the, the art directors, the you know, ECDs, the creatives who come up with this, this grand idea, usually. And they're thinking, is this pushing the creative idea to as far as it can go? So you've got these three people, three kind of well, groups of people, and they're all focused on their own job. The, the lighting mm-hmm. assistants are literally assisting. They are supporting you to bring your idea to life. Everyone's got their kind of singular focus. No one should be thinking about getting on a cup of tea or making sure the talent are met and their model releases are signed and you know have they been taken through and got ready on time have they kind of got this outfit on is it looking everyone's got their own 
kind of um, roles and responsibilities. And, and the producers are really facilitators on set to really bring that to life. But before we get on set, we do all the other stuff as well, all the other logistics. So, you know, we will go and either liaise with the kind of, we'll either do location scouting ourselves or we'll work with independent scouts to go out uh, find locations and then we, we sort of present them, package them up and present them back to the clients. Um, when you don't have an agent, we will sit on those calls with the ad agency with you and be the bridging supportive partner between, you know, the the creatives, the, the brand or the, the advertising agency and ourselves. A bit of a gatekeeper, you know, is what they're asking for feasible and fair, um, which I think is really important when you don't have an agent. Um, and, you know, we'll do mm-hmm. the running schedules, we'll do the, the kind of the casting, we'll get the stylist in place, we'll find the right crew. And it's all about finding the right people for the job as well. So we'll bring those specialists in. So our job is to be hyper organized, you know, to, to kind of have a humongous network of people to, to call on um, and to help you essentially support bringing this idea to life. So we do all the back end logistics that bring everything together. Hope that makes sense. I think one thing, I mean, that sounds, it, no, that makes perfect <laughs> sense. And um, it's a great explanation of what producers do. I think um, from photographers that I've spoken to or have reached out to me who are kind of earlier on in their career, one thing that they are always nervous about is how it all kind of pays for itself in terms of how the thing is structured from a cost perspective. Can you explain at all or go into at all a bit like how you work out? So say I was a photographer coming to you and I said, right, I've got this job. I've got this client. I've never done anything like this before. It's a big, big client. You know, they've seen this work they love and I've basically got the job and I need to cost for it, but I know nothing about it. So obviously with a traditional agent, they will take a percentage of your fee. Um, do you work in a similar way or do you charge on a kind of daily rate or a kind of job rate or how do you go about doing that? Because I think that's one thing from what I've heard, that's one thing that kind of makes some photographers nervous just because they don't understand how it all works. Absolutely. Yeah, of course. Am I going to be, am I pricing myself out the market by bringing in this other person and, and what are they going to take of my cut? I never touch anyone's fees. I don't touch your usage either. Um, there's different ways of doing it. Some production companies will put a, a blanket, also will take a blanket 10% of the production budget <clears throat> as a whole. That's very typical in the, um, you know, in motion, in, in TV and film production. Uh, 10, 15% of that whole overall production budget is their production fee. And that's the, like, the, like the business fee, as it were. Um, for me, I don't do that. Everything is itemized, you know. And, uh, you know, a producer's time is a line item within that, essentially. So you you see I'm making the money um, quite openly um, as part of that that line item. And I think it, when when do you work with a producer is such a massive question. Um, and I think there's there's two kind of avenues. When is it too much for you? When do you feel like it's, one, inhibiting your ability to do other work? Um, so is it getting in the way of you actually being able to fulfill the amount of work, which is a lovely position to have, right? <clears throat> um, mm-hmm. Or, you know, when is the job just too big that you risk uh, not being able to deliver it? So I had a conversation with someone a couple of years ago and they had done those editorial work. They were automotive um, creative. They'd done lots of editorial, but they had a big advertising job shooting out in, I don't know, Cape Town or somewhere like that. And they were a bit like, oh, you know, I can have a bash. And I'm thinking, I don't know if, you know, it, really are you going to be able to get exactly like you're making the face Tom exactly are you gonna be able to get all the you know the clients over there in the style that they 
Yeah, I'll bash at that. Um, just all the things we have to think about all the little things and I I see it all the time when I get quotes in from people as well and when we talk about pricing and usage um, both in Mother Brand but also on Wizen um, you know this idea of itemising things uh, I always say to people don't be afraid to itemise and actually in the commercial sector people want to see things itemised out it shows that you understand the Mm. job it's a really really good thing to list things out but when you do start listing it out it just unravels there's things like I don't know, uh, delivering an installation of sets. Like it's not just the set build, it's how is it going to get there? You know, how much does it cost to install? What does the installation date uh, encompass? Are people going to charge full days, half rates? What have you? Who do you need there? When you're working with kids, uh, you need a licensed chaperone um, or what the parents do it. What the parents are performing, they're not looking after their child. So you need an independent chaperone there you need to understand the parameters around how long children can be on set for and actually work within that do you need backup babies because they can only work for however long do you need to um you know you need to hire a house that has two toilets for example so you can have separate toilets for children for safeguarding all these little things that you pick up along the way as a producer but if you were um you know, just doing avid abash, uh, you could fall foul of. And some of those have really serious implications. Um, others are just that you're going to cock mm. up the job or just look a bit amateur on set. So, you know, when you bring in a producer, it, it really depends. But um, we have a, like early on in Mother Brand's career, developed like these, these creds decks. And we've gone in and helped creatives to pitch for work as well by going in and saying, right, you're an independent lone wolf, but I'm supported by this production company and this is all the people they've worked with. This is their work they've done before and, and you know, where they've shot around the globe and all that kind of stuff. And that really helps to kind of elevate you uh, sometimes when you haven't got the name of, you know, a safe name of an agent behind you, which I don't think you necessarily, you know, need right now. But yes, to the first point, um, I don't think producers should be taking, you know, um, any of your money. And actually, if it's a big job that actually warrants production support on it you become a line item you become part of that overall uh production expenses as you should that makes sense Mm -hmm. so basically if someone approaches you and says i've got this you know uh, big potential job you can then work together from uh day one basically on creating that cost and I, i guess what i'm trying to get across to to listeners who might find themselves in this position is don't be afraid to go to a producer early on because as long as you do go early on, you can you can make sure that that cost basically gets absorbed into the whole production of it. And it makes more sense to do it that way than to, as you said, uh, give it a bash kind of approach, which is what some people will do because they're kind of afraid of, of um, turning it into something bigger in a way. I think sometimes yeah. people get a bit nervous about a thing turning into a big production. And that that goes on on the on the um, sometimes that goes on the side of the client as well. I mean, sometimes you get a client who who might be from a big company, but they've been tasked with managing a shoot and have never done anything like that before, and they start to get nervous about how big it might be becoming in their eyes. And that's normally not because it's becoming massive; it's because they've not considered the amount of elements are actually involved in a successful photo shoot, like you said, with all, you know, permits and permissions and having a first aid or on set and all of those kind of things that you need for insurances and what have you. Absolutely. And having insurance. So, yeah. okay. well, you know, <laughs> I pay a fortune a year for my insurance because it covers everybody to be employed. 
uh, under my, you know, under my banner um, and, you know, quite hefty PLI for location hire and stuff like that. So it's taking all those things off your hands. I just think for me, production is about, like, it's about supporting. Like I say, I, I realized quite early on that I'm a bit of a facilitator. I kind of really enjoy that part of bringing something to life, standing back and think, I made that happen, but it's not my idea. It's not me executing it. You know, it's not me modeling in it or anything. I'm not actually part of that, any of that, um, sort of front facing forward facing thing but for me it's really satisfying knowing that it was my connections and I built that team and I actually brought this whole thing to life you know and I think um it's I would say if you are going to bring someone in do it as early as possible and certainly before ideally before yeah. you commit to to figures as well because it can be really hard to go in and say oh I'll do that for two grand a day yeah brilliant and then you go in and say well where's the usage and then suddenly, oh yeah well, actually my day it's two grand plus a grand and actually I need travel expenses or well, actually we need to feed everybody and well it's gonna be two grand for the hire and suddenly you've got a 20 grand bill and they're like well I thought your day rate was two grand it's like well it is but there's everything else that goes on this top. Is a, yeah and this is always a classic issue is that you get kind of you get quite often you'll just get asked oh can you just give us a ballpark for your your day rate and you're like well I mean personally right. I never give a day rate on a, on a, on a phone because it's it's totally it totally depends on what the job is and I quite often have to try and explain that to clients. I mean, it's different for me now because I'm represented and I'm an agent. But it you know prior to that, you you try and explain to someone, okay, well, I just need a bit more information, and normally that's fine. But it's amazing still how you'll occasionally get you know in, in even big agencies that will get in touch to say yeah, yeah yeah, but just a ballpark because they need to have some kind of rough idea. And it is incredibly difficult to do that because you can paint yourself into a corner, as you said, and suddenly the job changes and the specs change and it becomes a bigger deal or it becomes a different beast altogether. And yeah. you're stuck because you've given this figure that they've now got in their head that's no longer relevant. Yeah, and I think it's important to remember, you don't have to price yourself the same way every time. You know, not every client, uh, not every job is the same. And actually your day rate, sorry, or, or the way you approach it can can change. And it depends mm. on, you know, um, I think generally there's three ways of pricing something. There's your day rate plus expenses. Um, there's a project fee, you know, and there's, um, and there's retainers, which feel a bit old school, but are, you know, definitely still alive and kicking, especially in the world of um, where regular, you know, content is being created. So social media content. I know a couple of photographers that do, you know, regular one, two, three, kind of images a month for particular brands for a set fee. And that's, you know, it's great. It's great. Little, they know they're getting it every month and that's fantastic. And the mm -hmm. project fee as well, I think that's really important though. And it's not just for small things, right? The project fee doesn't have to be the, oh, can you just do it all for, you know, three grand or whatever. It's, um, it works up as well. So one of the jobs in I dealt with in, uh, in advertising, I forget, it's about 350 grand or something like that. And we were quibbling over how many days the photographer had to be on set for. And I was like, I think it's a four day, five day shoot with a couple of days, if, you know. And in the end, the client just said, the agent said, look, it doesn't matter at the end of the day, whether he does one or two recce's or scopes. It, we were flying him in. It's like, he's flying in from LA to Canada. He's gonna be there for a week and he's working this job. So for $80,000, he's gonna deliver your job. Whether now, mm. you know, and we agreed on a night that was nothing to do with usage. It was nothing to do with output, but it was to do with all the you know, hours and days on set. If you do a half day on this day, but do a bit of overtime, I don't care about that. I'm going to deliver yeah. this job for a ton of money, 
And you're like, mm. oh, yeah, great. And I've done this as well when I've worked with, with ad agencies. You know, we've been quibbling about, oh, you know, your day rate's this, but we normally pay this. And I'm just like, you know what, for, for a flat rate of lots of money, I will deliver your job for you, you know? Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. But, yeah. Ring fenced <laughs> so they don't take the piss. But yeah, I think you can remember that actually you can negotiate those big jobs as well, um, rather than having to feel like project fees are just little, little kind of smaller amounts. I think the, mm. the, the key thing to take away is actually, is always to ring fence your time in terms and conditions. So, you know, how many hours a day are you on set? I know I've just said that that didn't matter yeah. with, the, uh, with, the, with the project fees. I'm completely contradicting myself. But I think whenever you say, whenever you do quote a day rate or you quote anything, always be clear about what that covers. Is that plus fat? If mm. it is, tell them, you know, is that your time for two days prep and two days prep at eight hours a day and, and then a shoot day of 10 hours? You know, that, that's fine. But to be super clear about what people are buying, I think that's really important. Communication, basically, and clarity all yeah. the way along. Mm. Mm. Absolutely. Absolutely. Do you, is there any, uh, I mean, this is a slight divergence, but me and Tom always love to um, geek out on software. <laughs> I was just thinking, oh, do, yeah. Do you let's have do, any let's tips do or this. Elements Woo. that you use to keep on top of things. Well, Are you a spreadsheet feed. Quickly, oh, Greg, I want to see. So I, I had a session <laughs> with Emma. How long ago did we have that? Was six months ago? Ooh. And I ran you through a Think whole so, load yeah. of software. I want to see how much of what I talked to you about has landed. Okay. The floor oh, is open. The, the expression on your face says <laughs> <laughs> it's still done Zero. on the back of a napkin. <laughs> wow. Uh, the one thing I did look into and buy was Keyboard Maestro. Thank you very much. This is such a great yes. tip. If you are constantly Isn't writing it? the same thing, and for me, you know, sending out my uh, invoice details to members of the crew, please invoice me with these details, blah, 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 you know, mine, uh, name, my company address and, and all that kind of stuff. That is so tedious. So yeah, that, that's something you start writing and it'll start the phrase, it just appears, amazing. Um, and again, the kind of blanket response to, which sounds really awful to say blanket response, but um, you know, thank you so much for sharing your, your work. I will keep it on file kind of thing, um, which sounds really awful, but I get so many and I do keep, I do look at them and I do file them away, but it's really hard to respond to the number of emails I get a day. So those quick responses, which are nice and pleasant and, and genuine, um, are, you know, are really easy, are really easy to spell. So yeah, keyboard maestro for automated, um, body text things. That's wicked. You... That was such a good tip. Thank you. It was a good tip, right? Did you, did you yeah. level up though? Have you found out how to put the cursor back to where you well, need it? So when no. you do the text expansion, oh. you can then tell the cursor to go back to the space after dear and before the comma, and then you write your name. I get, I, something if else, anyone Tom. has ever emailed me, there's always something else. I mean, I am utterly <laughs> extra, but if, if, so you say, for example, you know, I, I get a lot of people reaching out uh, saying, can, can they come and assist me? Uh, yeah. And I, I have my guys that I really like working with and they know how I work. They also know how quickly I pay. So, you know, we have a, we have a good thing going on. Um, but I, I, you know, I get a lot of these um, emails from students mainly and they say, well, can I come and assist you? Well, actually my kit, my kit's quite involved, stuff like that. So type in no assist, boom, deletes it all, puts the cursor back and I type in, you know, Greg, cause Greg's forever emailing me. And, okay. um, and then it, and then, 
bosh, away we go. So 10 seconds to send, not even 10 seconds, probably less than two seconds to send a personalized reply, which is so important because I remember being at the start of my career, frantically emailing people out and then not hearing anything back. And it was gutting. It was absolutely gutting. So to get a nice personal response, you know, and, and I'm sure you're the same as me. I really make my replies hopefully as useful and as kind as possible. So they have a link to, you know, if someone's asking me for advice or whatnot, they send it in to me and then it sends back a really long paragraph and there's an FAQ on the website, which answers, I went through all of the emails I got over the first 10, past probably five, 10 years. And I answered pretty much the most common questions, which is at tombarns.com forward slash FAQ, if you're interested. And then if uh, it's a kit question, there is also tombarns.com forward slash gear. Now that one's really cool because that is a grid of all the equipment I use. And it's that's just a link in an email, which hopefully people find find useful. So they get something out of the, the auto reply. So as well as Keyboard Maestro, are there any other kind of software things? I mean, you know, obviously we love the tech on this on this show. Are there any kind of uh, softwares or anything? Softwares? Man, I just sounded like 80, 100 years old. Um, but yeah, is there any software or any apps that you kind of f- find super useful in planning or organization or doing quotes or, you know, any, any part of the work? Gosh, I do love a spreadsheet. My mantra used to be, oh, pop it in a spreadsheet, mm. um, <laughs> which is a bit weird. Uh, and I have looked at various different um, kind of, you know, things to jump away from that. And I must admit, I am old school. You've got to remember, I'm I am in my 40s now. So it's all about the Excel. It's all about Google Docs for me. Um, Google Docs. But when um, Google Docs, <laughs> retro, <laughs> um, I just find I'm, I need to make the jump to zero fully, but I haven't done that yet. I still still have everything kind of laid out, uh, but that'll be my next move. But actually, in in terms of Wizen, it was quite interesting. So um, the career development platform, my husband's just left his job of 10 years to come and join me. And I was very much like, right, you know, I am the boss. I just need to let you know that this is my baby and I am the boss. And, you know, I hope we can work together. And literally within two days, he was like, right, so I've, uh, I've set us up in Jira and Confluent. So uh, we're going to run everything in Jira. We're going to have this. And we've integrated HubSpot. And I've, I was like, brilliant. Thanks a lot. So we actually use um, this is probably a bit too sort of out there <coughs> potentially for some for some people. But um, Confluence is, a, is like a wiki, essentially. So we're, we're building the business properly from the beginning using wiki, um, Wikipedia. So you know everything is kind of... Um, uh sectioned up on the homepage. So we have started with our mission, vision, values, you know, uh marketing plans, uh sort of what do you call it, uh, financial models, everything has its own section and everything's being input into the one thing. And that is actually quite interesting. Once you get your head around it, it becomes a great place for note taking because, you know, I oh my goodness, I, I love a notepad. He won't have a notepad in the room when he's there. He's in his like, notepads are where ideas go to die, he says, which we, we do we do loggerheads on this a bit. It's very co- we, <laughs> He's very out there. Um, it's quite extra it's quite an extreme view. Quite extreme view. <laughs> um, but there is a fair point to that that it's not searchable. Right. So you know and I do try to do bullet journaling with a number in the corner and make my index. I do it for three pages and then I have two hundred and ninety seven pages of just 
notes. Um, so I do get that actually. Now I do try and put everything into Confluence and I work out of that a lot, which is brilliant. So, you know, and you can just, you can sort of write a note and then link it back. So it might, be, it's free, you know, it might be a bit of a, bit too heavy for some people, for some people who love the process and the order. Tom, I'm looking at you. It's, it's really interesting. Well, I, I do sort of have to ask, obviously I got Greg onto this uh, and now me and Greg absolutely swear, swear by it. Actually, after our friend Art Stryber came on the show uh, and we talked about databases and we then had a private chat a couple of weeks later with Art and we just talked for hours about databases. It, it was actually, I was in heaven. I think Greg was as well. But um, I do have to ask why, why you've used Confluence and not Notion. Ah, um, I don't know. That is a that is my husband's question. That's a Paul question. Um, I do all Paul. that stuff to him. Yes, I'm going to say like, get him on. Right, come on, open the door. <laughs> come on, come on, Paul. Paul. In you come. He will talk about <laughs> what are you playing there for hours. Um, and then Jira, Jira is um, essentially a, a bit like a Monday doc. You know, it's it's a it's a planning tool. And sure. that's really, that integrates with Confluence. Trello influences, integrates with Confluence. And then we use HubSpot as our CRM. CRM is the biggest thing for me that I've really struggled with over the years. Uh, mm -hmm. Customer relationship tool to manage who I have pitched out to, who has come inbound and managing those notes. And I've used, oh my goodness, I've used loads. But actually HubSpot is what we're going with at the moment. So that is more for building uh, the, the, the real business bones. But I would say... You know, and I think I think I know you guys probably wanted to come onto this later, but this idea of you know, just because you are independent, just because you are freelance, does not mean that you are not a business. You are a business. So you know, mm -hmm. in some ways, there are these amazing tools out there that are you know just as suitable for freelancers, just as suitable for tracking your your know your finance, your invoices, and all that kind of stuff. Um, there's so much software out there now use it go and get free trials there's so many that have entry points for one user that are free there's so much uh, tech out there to support your your business so yeah definitely go and try and get a, play with different things and see how it can support you because the days of using excel like me um are you know they don't you don't need to be doing it anymore they are gone they are so gone mm -hmm. <laughs> i just need to really take that final old lady leap and move away from my <laughs> beloved spreadsheets uh, <laughs> So Emma, I know obviously, sorry, I know we've come from talking about software, but there was something you said right back at the beginning. Um, obviously, when you when you had the redundancy uh, and then you had that, that not safety net, but kind of like a safety net, if you will, of, of the money, you were then able to kind of confidently make the jump from being a PAYE to being freelancer. A lot of people, I get a lot of messages saying, when did you make the jump? Now, I also had a bit of a safety net of, I did the jump when I was at university when I was 19. So I've never done, I worked three days in a normal job and that's been it. My entire work career has been been self-employed as a freelancer. Have you got any tips or have you, because you've probably helped people make the jump as well. Have you got any tips if there are people who are kind of, you know, really want to go and make photography a, a goer and they really want to make the jump. Have you got any tips to kind of help them them do it? Because it is daunting. It's hugely daunting. Um, yeah, my number one tip actually would be know your numbers. And that really is understand exactly what you need to bring in a month to survive, literally to be able to eat. And, that, um, and we did this uh, when we were on maternity, when I was on maternity leave, um, before I actually decided to launch a production company, 
um, we moved house and we had to detail, can we afford to actually move house? Can we afford mm-hmm. to do this? I don't know if we can. Uh, and it was an amazing exercise and we we update this spreadsheet and we, you know, we keep it current and it's been sort of basis for so many decision-making, you know, we've done since. So yeah, understand, literally go through your bank statements for the last three, six months, whatever, and detail everything that you spend and then work out what is the absolute vital things that you need to be able to live. That is, you know, rent or mortgage or, you know, food, bills, whatever it is, and make one spreadsheet with that in. So you know what your absolute baseline is that you need to make in a month. And make another tab and then add in things like, you know, the fun budget. You want to have a little bit of fun. Maybe you want to go on holiday. The things that you kind of want to have a bit more of. Mm-hmm. And then your pension. That's really boring, but a pension and savings. So maybe make, I end up with three. One, which is like, I know, sorry to talk about pensions. But <laughs> no, there's it's three tabs. There's one which is not, you know, living off Tesco Value Beans for the rest of your life and dying of scurvy. Mm-hmm. There's another one which is like actually thinking about, um, living a reasonable lifestyle and there is one that is preparing for your future which is turning a profit what profit do you want to bring in what do you actually want to be turning not what not what do you have to take from this business what do you want this business to make for you what is your goal and then what do you want to be saving a month for your future what do you want to be putting away into your pension for your future and then mm-hmm. including those things that's actually kind of your personal expenditure but you also have business expenses as well doesn't have to be an office or a co-working space, but you will have to spend money on your business at some point. You will have to insure your kit. You should have PLI for yourself. Um, you know, you will have to probably buy some kit. That kit will get, you know, wear and tear. How much are you going to put away each month to replace your computer when it just inexplicably explodes on your lap, you know, which it has done. And suddenly you have to drop another two and a half grand on the computer. So all these things will happen. What if you want to go and buy them? You know, so there's like an equipment kit. There's all these different ongoing things that you'll need to uh, factor in. Do you, are you part of memberships? Do you need to pay for the, the AOP membership a year or whatever it is? Travel. So start building out these lists to get a real understanding of what your monthly expenditures are. And this will not only make you realize, is this feasible for me? But it also helps to set your your brand and your your tone of voice because if you are, uh, I guess, if you need to bring in a lot of money, are you going to be quite a premium service? You know, are you sort of one job a month, one job a quarter, that sets me up forever. You know, you're shooting planes and you're going to charge hundreds of thousands of pounds. Is that what you're going to do? Or are you, you know, low volume, low, low, sorry, low cost, high volume, real churn and burn, but I can get through this. I can do like 10 jobs in a week. Boom, 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 boom. You know, so start thinking about that. That will really affect how you actually start to talk about yourself, how you pitch yourself, your kind of brand presence and your tone of voice. Um, Also think about how realistic it is that you're going to be shooting. So is it going to be once a month? Is it once a week, twice a month? What do you want and what's realistic? And then that will give you an indication of how hard you have to go with your marketing or pitching or how are these where is this work going to come from so it's very Mm -hmm. boring to say sit down and do the numbers but you have to do the numbers first you've got to have an understanding of what it is before you throw the towel in and then if you want to you know have a backup of savings you know what three months savings looks like you know you know what whatever you feel like you have to be comfortable what your runway is you can start to work towards that and then when you've got that figure that's it that's go time right that's that's um that's press the button i think there's also a feeling you know when when you um when you start to have more work than you can handle is also a really good 
chance, but it is kind of chicken and egg. Does the work come when you are available and immersing yourself in that industry or does it come, you know, when you are, can you prepare it? Can you bank it up and then leave or does it work the other way around? So it, you'll get a feel for that. It depends on what you're, what you're doing. But I think for me, on a very practical level, it's doing your homework with your numbers. On an emotional level, it's quite different. I think for me on, a, on an emotional level, it's all about your network as well. So while you're doing, getting your savings and investing in your kit and kind of researching all the things that you need in terms of yeah, insurance and all that kind of stuff, you've got to think about your network too. Where is your kind of, your tribe, so to speak? You know, we're quite social beings. We, we more than ever, we need this kind of tribe to help ourselves thrive. So I think it's really... Mm-hmm. And that became really key, I think, during the pandemic, actually, mm. how isolating it can feel to be working in a, on your own. And I think you've got the can't underestimate sort of actually how isolating sometimes being freelance can be. Um, you know, you go on set and it's really, you know, it's really kind of, um, commu- what do you call it, execution, it's quite collaborative. There's lots of people there if you're on bigger kind of advertising sets, commercial jobs. You've got your stylist running around, you've got runners and stuff. But then you go home or to your studio or, or, you know, to a co-working space or wherever you're working at. And quite often we sit and work on our own. And I think Mm -hmm. that's, you know, that's really profound, actually. I started researching, kind of looking into this idea of, um, of isolation, this idea that creators face isolation. Actually, before the pandemic um, landed, I was working with uh, quite a few creatives in a mental capacity. Um, and I sort of started to notice these patterns that people were feeling really lost and a bit sort of losing their way, losing the love of their craft quite a lot. Um, and mm-hmm. I ended up writing a, a workshop for the photography and video show which was all about building creative resilience and, and overcoming isolation when you work on your own predominantly. And then obviously that was, um, that was canceled due to the pandemic. So I toured it around. And I think at the end, by the end of lockdown, I think over a thousand people had, had shared that with a thousand people um, by the end of 2022, which was, which was amazing. 2020, amazing. sorry. 2022 is now. End of 2020. <laughs> um, I was going to say, you're doing very well. Amazing. <laughs> doing really well. Smashing through it, mate. <laughs> <laughs> but the key points in that um, in that workshop were were really around finding and tapping into your your tribe, you know, your network, and, and making sure you have mm-hmm. people who can support you, who can answer your questions, um, but also support you on the way up. That you can share work with as well, and kind of get feedback. Where does that feedback loop come from when you work on your own? And also to hold ourselves accountable, mm-hmm. which was another really key point. You know, a way of keeping the kind of fire and the, you know, the excitement, the drive and the love, the sheer love of our kind of craft alive, I think comes from um, this idea, this sort of feedback loop. Uh, otherwise, you just, I don't know, you're sat in a hole making work, but with no, with no point of reference. So I think your network, one, do your numbers, but your network is absolutely paramount as well, building that up. I think a big part of the network thing is going to be trust as well because you're you're going to be having some very frank and open conversations with people in in that network if you're if you're going to be talking about the creative aspects of the job but also maybe your mental health um you know your 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 goals your targets and I know I have I have people that I speak to about things like this all the time you know Greg's one of them and um you know poor him but um you know there's a there's a group I would say probably of five people that I trust not to share anything 
and that we can have really open conversations. And I think they trust me as well. And it's a really nice open dialogue where we can talk about actually anything that's bothering us with with work or finances or anything like that. So I, I think that's a really a good thing to be doing. Yeah, and it's, it's, it helps as well if it's somebody who is in the industry, you know, because they understand it, they get it. You know, it's if you've never freelanced, if you've never been self-employed, um, it can sometimes seem to an outsider like, what are you worrying about? What are you moaning about? Like, you get to, you know, take an afternoon off whenever you want. You don't have a boss that you don't get on with and all this kind of stuff. But actually, if you've never done it, uh, there's there's the the mental side of freelancing I think is something that has previously perhaps been underappreciated and pandemic as you saw with by doing your workshop really kind of actually brought that into the fore the idea of working from home for a start you know a, a mix working from home and working from a studio but actually um, during the pandemic I predominantly worked from home because we decided as a collective not to go into the studio for you know for health reasons and for me that was shifting back eight years you know because i'd worked for a stu- from a studio for so long hmm. so suddenly i was back to working from home and that led to me kind of having to rethink how i went about doing that and what that meant for my mental health at the time etc cetera, etc cetera. yeah definitely actually it reminds me there's um one of the things that i do talk about i, I ran a workshop last week for um amazon for their female founders bootcamp. One of the things we talked about was the power of accountability. This idea of kind of declaring your intentions openly, but also inviting other people to be part of your success, which is what it's doing. Um, and there's a couple of ways you can do it. You have a partner, accountability partner, you can have, you know, you can have a mentor, accountability groups. But actually, there's a, you know, if you want to sort of 10x this, this thinking, Google methodology uh, of, of 10x, how do you increase your you know, um, output, not by, by 10, by 10, uh, not by 10%, but by 10 times. There's this idea of building a personal board of advisors, which sounds really grand and kind of unnecessary, but it's actually a really powerful concept or it's, it's an interesting exercise to go through. Um, essentially, it's mapping out all the people who have influence and support in your life. And that is everyone from, you know, my mum, who will always love whatever I do, even though she has no idea what it is or what impact it has or anything. She's always like, oh, that's nice, dear. Mm-hmm. Because that's her job, right? That's her job to say, mm, that's nice, dear. Fantastic. And provide biscuits. Sure. That is your role. Mm-hmm. Thank you, mum. Thank you for always doing your job <laughs> and making me feel good. Um, but actually, does my mum understand the landscape? No, she hasn't worked in this industry. She doesn't come from this background. So it's really understanding who, kind of what, um, I guess, who is in your sphere of influence as well. So, you know, you've also got, old, I don't know, old colleagues, former colleagues, um, I don't know, acquaintances, people in your network who will give you very career-focused advice, but will maybe give you also very personal advice as well. People who are looking out for your, psychosocial we call it, but, you know, looking out for your well-being and your happiness, and then other people who are really driven towards you achieving those career goals. And then you've got, you know, uh, what do you call it, kind of, um, um, Oh, the words have got to go. The, the you know famous people, like influences, or, or kind of men, people men, who influence mentors? you. Oh. No model. What's the word? Like celebrities who you might look up to. <laughs> oh my god, my brain's gone blank. Um, and then you've got 
kind of superstars. Yeah, superstars who you might never ever meet, but who really influence you all the same. And I think it's about understanding mm-hmm. where they sit on this axis and also what part they play in terms of your growth. And the the reason that's important is because you know our friends and family, they love us, right? They love us unconditionally, hopefully, and they are our cheerleaders, whatever. However, that actually can be really, um, I guess, almost prevent our growth, you know, our risk taking sometimes, our, our our pivoting. If we want to move away from something, sometimes they they limit our growth because they're really worried about it. God, do, you, oh, do you think you should do that? Are you sure? Oh, maybe you should say. So actually. But a mentor or a coach or uh, somebody in the industry that you're working with, a trusted kind of one-to-one advisor might say, do you know what? That's a really good move. I feel like you should do that. So it's understanding, mm-hmm. building this board of advisors, which is four, five, six, whoever it is, who you have on your on your sphere, on your, on your kind of your radar. And what are they serving? What problems do you take to each of those people? And what... Um, what kind of niche are they are they providing? What niche advice are they providing? I think that's really important to understand. So yeah, building a board of advisors feels like a really grand thing, but actually it's just under, acknowledging who influences you and who guides you and where yeah. you take certain problems to get a, to inform your decision-making because no one can fix you, right? None, none of these people will, will make these decisions for you, but it's about getting a really balanced input of, of, of advice to help you make the best decisions. And I think you've got to think about diversity in here as well. And by that, I mean people who are less experienced than you, as well as people who are more senior than you. Because I think that's really interesting as well. You mm-hmm. know, people who are in the industry, people who are not in the industry. It's a really good sounding board for, um, for decision-making, especially when you start growing your business and you are thinking about taking big leaps. So yeah, personal board of advisors mm-hmm. sounds really wanky, but actually can be really, really crucial, even if it's just an exercise for yourself to understand who is missing on your sort of sphere of influence. Absolutely. Really good shout. Really good shout. With the idea of having this kind of uh, personal board of advisors, um, I guess that brings us on to kind of these, the idea of peaks and troughs in one's career and and how to kind of tackle that, you know, when, when we're all going through those creative lows um, you know, I've, I've, for me, I guess part of my board of advisors are the other photographers I share a studio with, uh, without realizing it. Um, mm. They are people that I speak to, and you know, we we quite often are talking about these kind of, um, you know, these peaks and troughs that we all go through, and we have to remind ourselves that actually it's entirely normal to kind of have these quiet periods or periods where you just fall out of love with what you do and you're not that inspired. Um, and have strategies of how you fix that. But what would you, if you got anything yourself that you'd like to bring to that? Cool, yeah, that's, it is really tough. It's really, really tough. Um, it is a roller coaster. I think that's the one thing the pandemic has definitely shown us. It is a mass, and that things can disappear in an instant, which was really shocking. Um, I think going back to basics is really important. So having a really strong idea of what you stand for is really important. So like, what are your values? What drives you? Um, we tend to think about when you start a business as being, you know, you, you set your mission, vision and values. Um, I think this, like this exercise again of doing your, what is your mission? What is your vision? What is your, what are your values as an independent, as much as, you know, a, a, as a big business is actually really, really important. I'm a, like what, 
what drives you to do what you do? Why do you love it? What What is it that makes you get up in the morning and and and, and pushes you to create? Um, and I think understanding what makes you different, like what are your values? That's what sets you apart. That's what makes you really unique. Maybe not in your eye, but actually what underpins mm. what you're shooting. I'm a really firm believer in having a niche. I think, you know, as a as an art buyer and a producer, someone who's commissioned a lot of work, uh, I know that what kind of sets photographers apart is actually um, their niche. You know, you if you can park the kind of, um, <clears throat> sorry, you don't want to be a, a jack of all trades. You know, essentially having a niche, I think is really important because you, as you know, as, as the client wants to have the best of the best always. And, and whether it's a wedding photographer or whether you are, you know, Coca-Cola, whatever, you want to buy into the best of the best. You don't want someone who can have a bash and do it all. You know, you really want to put your money and get the best out. Mm -hmm. But I don't think that has to be executional. I don't think it has to be you are the woman who shoots dogs or hedgehogs and that's it, or the man who just does automotive. I actually think your values form a really core part of that as well. So your outlook, you know, I worked with someone recently who, um, uh, who was into lifestyle, but also was a vegan. And she was like, that, that's really important to me. It's really fundamental to my lifestyle. And I want to work with vegan brands who are doing good, have, who have a real underpinned with sort of social enterprise. And that sets her apart. That gives her her values. And that really helps her be focused on who her target clients are. So I think kind of going back and spending a bit of time revisiting what makes you really excited, what drives you actually will help you to be inspired. You know, and if you can say, Yes, stop the kind of comparison demon, as it were, by looking at other people's work and just allow yourself to be inspired. And it's hard when you are, when you don't have work coming in to look at other people's work and go, oh, I should be shooting that. I could be shooting that. I could have done that. But if you can park that for a minute and actually literally just go and absorb other people's work and just see what ideas are out there, I think that's really powerful as well. And never stop shooting. You know, personal work is so important um, as an art buyer. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I I want to see personal work in your portfolio. I want to see that you are passionate enough about your craft, that you love this medium enough to actually go out and be shooting your own work. And it shows me what your eye is, not what you do with a, you know, with somebody else's brief and somebody else's idea. What's your idea? What do you love? So I think, you know, if mm. you do have those periods, those trough periods where there's no work, do you have projects in the back burner you can pull out and get excited about? That's going to help you keep the love alive, but it's also going to make you interesting. <laughs> you know, it's going to be, when you have ghosties or someone asks you what you're doing, you're like, well, do you know what? I've just been, just been working on this thing. And it's a story. Invariably, when people would come to the ad agency, we would spend more time talking about their personal work than we would, you know, the, the commissioned work they did for, you know, McDonald's or whatever. It was like, it was their personal work. It was mm -hmm. super exciting. I think that that's, you know, that's really important. There's a little exercise I wrote up a couple of years ago. If you go to Mother Brand Instagram, Mother Brand, um, about halfway down the page, there's a little, little pink box. And it says, leave with the work you want to attract. And it's like a couple of steps for kind of going back to your, um, going back to your website with the idea of who your target clients are. And then thinking, do I, am I really showing, am I really leading with the work that I want to be making? So I think that's a really good time when you have downtime mm -hmm. to go and look at, what, what do I want to be making? What, not what are my clients right now, but what are my target clients? Who do I really, what work do I really want to be making? And then, you know what? Go and make that work. It's really simple. Go and make that work. I know it's really difficult if you want to shoot planes and you want to shoot kind of yachts and stuff like that, but there is always a way of, of doing this first step. Um, 
in the startup industry, you talk about the MVP, if you guys know, this minimum viable product. So um, it's, it's part of the lean methodology. Like, what is the minimum viable product? What is the, the minimum thing I need to do to test my idea? Which is really important when you've got, you know, potentially millions of backing behind you in this big idea, you have to get over the line. But I think it applies directly to the creative industry as well. What is the minimum viable thing you need to do to go and test that idea? And I don't mean being work shy like me at school like what is the minimum I need to do to get by it's like what is the the minimum thing I can do to actually literally test this fantastic creative idea that lives in my head or my notebook you know we said notebooks are where ideas go to die so what do I need to do to get it out of that notebook and is it just an iPhone like I think sometimes we want to have the perfect setup for everything we want to have the perfect you know kit and the perfect space and the perfect you know studio and, and all that kind of stuff but to test an idea, you don't need that. You know, you need the basic of kit and light, depending on what it is. Mm-hmm. So what is your MVP? What, what do you need to really, really get that idea going? And I think if you're in those trough periods, go back to your sketchbook, go back to wherever you keep these ideas and just think about the work you want to be making. And then do you know what? Go and make it. <laughs> go and make it. Leave with the work you want to attract. And never stop shooting. That's my idea. Well, that I think that's a that's a great place to um, to try and you know bring this this episode to a close. Obviously, we always have our f- two final questions that we'd love to ask our guests. Um, one of which is our uh, desert island photo book, and the other is our desert island camera. Um, so, have you had time to think about that? Yes, it's a really hard question. Um, my desert island photo <laughs> book, I think, would have to be um, eyewitness by the late Tom Stoddard, um, which uh, is not a particularly cheery book, um, but it's one that I was really fortunate to be able to work on when I I got my first sort of proper job in London. Um, I was working in agency and and he was uh, was repped by IPG and they were just on his exhibition, just put his book together and I got to work on the tail end of that. That was just mind blowing, having come out of university, done a year in the, you know, on a newspaper picture desk and then boom, being like, yeah. being immersed in this he's, incredibly he's a real, powerful conference. a real gentleman. Is, yeah, real He was an amazing, well, amazing he? man. He had incredible stories. Yeah, and he just mm. would welcome anybody and he was, oh, I absolutely loved him. He was amazing, amazing man, amazing to work with. Um, so I think even though it's not a particularly, yeah, cheery book, um, it's really important. It's I remember thinking... Yeah, I'm so lucky to be straight out of uni and working with this kind of work. It absolutely blew my mind saying this is so important this work exists. So yeah, that would be that would be one book, definitely, I think. It's a big one, thick one, so okay. keep going for a while. <laughs> and uh, what about your camera? Camera, my goodness. I think it's gonna have to be a Mamea RB67. That was the first medium format camera I got, actually, no, it's my second medium format camera I got. And I shot on that all the time uh, in my 20s. And On a um, tripod, though. Yeah. Well, no, not always. But yeah, it's a bit heavy, heavy beast. <laughs> wow, um, okay. <clears throat> yeah, yeah, big guns, mate. Big guns. I'm hard as nails, mate. <laughs> Strong as an ox. Um, but there's something between, I used to shoot on transparency and when you, um, which I loved the idea, I love shooting on transparency because you have half a stop difference either way to get it right. So, you know, you, you become a complete, um, 
you know, master of, of like you meter and meter and meter and meter and then that sound when you take that one shot and when you get those mm. transparencies back a six seven is a really meaty image it's really beautiful yeah. to look at a six transparency so and, the, and the polaroid it's the ultimate well. level of the considered the considered photo you know yeah. because you, you you have to make all those decisions and as you said there's something about that when you suddenly or not when you suddenly when you finally take the photo <laughs> and there's that is that meaty mechanical clunk and you know that you've put a lot of work into that single frame versus the silent yeah that we have these it's like the gravel coming down (laughs) on an auction and we're done yeah Yeah. beautiful (laughs) i have one actually i've left mine in australia and i'm going back we're flying out this weekend so i'm going to go and pick it up and bring it back i cannot wait it's been over there for years so it will live again very nice hopefully very nice well thank you so much for for today i think you've you've covered so many amazing um spots if people want to find out more is there anywhere that we can send them absolutely you can find me on instagram at motherbran and at wizen.me and that's the same online motherbran.com and wizen.me for the career development platform now wizen is w-i-s-e-r-n right wizen yeah perfect perfect well listen thank you so much for coming on that's been oh yeah there we go on the t-shirt very smart very smart no it's been an absolute pleasure and that is a a fantastic episode so thank you so so much for coming on oh thank you very much for having me it's been a real blast thanks guys hey guys and thank you so much for listening to the latest episode if you'd like to stay in touch there are a number of options for you to uh, reach out we can be emailed um, at info at exposednegative.com and you can find us on the website at exposednegative.com or on Instagram at xnegative. We're pretty good at responding to DMs on there and we're also on Twitter at exposednegative. You can find us personally on our own private accounts on Instagram. Uh, Tom is tombarnes.com and I am just Greg Fennell. Cheers. Thanks for listening. <laughs>